Hey, what's up? This is Jeremy Palco from The Walking Dead, and this is Still Toking With. Hi, I'm Larry Kenny, and you're listening to Still Token With. What's up, everybody? It's comedian Sherwin Array, and you're listening to Still Toking With on the Dorkening Podcast Network. Happy Wednesday, everybody. You are watching Still Token With. My name is Leo. I'm the monkey behind the keyboard here. We have a great show scheduled for you, as always. Tonight's going to be an awesome show. And uh, without further ado, Mr. Benjamin, how's it going? It's going wonderful, man. Uh, the computer seems to be working, so let's let's keep it going that way. But I'm, su- I'm super, super psyched about tonight's guest. I've been looking forward to this for over a month now. Um, Leo or Jeff? Anybody know what next Wednesday is? Yes, huh? November huh? 22nd. It's an anniversary. In an anniversary of? An assassination. Oh, okay. We'll, we'll go with that. I'll leave it there. I see how you're playing tonight. Right. I'm ready. I'm ready for this. Jeffrey. Happy, happy, happy Wednesday. We are, what, eight days away from Thanksgiving? Crazy, huh? is that next? That's next week, isn't that's it? That's next week, yeah. That's next Damn. week, yeah. It's the day after the assassination. Yes, I hope my wife got a turkey so we can assassinate that. That's what I want. So, anyway, we got a great show. Uh, let's just bring him right in. Uh, John Barbour, Barber, Barbie, Barber. Barbour. See, I told you I'd fuck it all up. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, John. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Well, I must tell you, fellas, that's the most wonderfully produced opening that I've ever seen. I love the coffee commercial. I think you should make the opening 60 minutes long and just call it a show. Oh, it there is, we go. <laughs> it's really absolutely fantastic. I am delighted, delighted to be here with you. Well, wow. we're we're so so since we just kind of led into it, what is next Wednesday, John? Next uh, Wednesday is uh, November 22nd, 1963, the 60th anniversary of the murder of President John F. Kennedy. It is also the day that my third and final documentary opens at the Town Center 5 Theater in Encino, California, and it is called John Barber's and William Shakespeare's Last Word on the Murder of JFK. Now, I, my first question to you is, you're, you, you, you've chosen the word murder over assassination. Is there a reason for that? No, well, because... Um, I mean, they're the same thing, but... It, uh, it, you know, assassination 
implies that it was a plot, which indeed it was. It was a central intelligence agency, but it was intended to be a public slaughter as a warning to anyone who thought that the president of the United States ran this country when they did do not. Jim Garrison said that to me in a three and a half hour on uh, no, uh, November 5th, no, September 5th, 1981, I sat in his office, put him on camera for three and a half hours. This was uh, the year when my show, the show that I had created, the most original show in the history of television, it was the very first reality show. It was called <laughs> Real People, and I was the creator, I was a producer, and I was the host. And when I put Mr. Garrison on, uh, on camera, he said, if the American public do not do anything about the murder of John Kennedy, and he called it a murder, mm -hmm. they will begin to realize that the president of the United States does not run the country. And he's absolutely right. The president of the United States does not run the country. Figurehead. Yes, figurehead. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and, right. and to show you how pathetic they are, uh, as a result of Oliver Stone's excellent film, JFK, which came out in 1992 and it created a great furor. And there were millions of people who stormed Congress and they wanted something done about the assassination. So all Congress did was pass the Records Assassination Act. And it was all of the file, files were supposed to be released over three years ago in October when Donald Trump was president, Donald Trump was always talking about fake news and all that rubbish. And he had the opportunity with just a stroke of the pen to have all the files released. And he caved into the Central Intelligence Agency. And the same thing happened with Joe Biden. It's kind of interesting that we're talking about this this week because a week ago exactly, Joe Biden publicly said, I'm washing my hands of the Assassination Act. I don't want anything to do with the, the file business. That's up to the CIA. And then the CIA, hearing that, said publicly, we are never releasing the files on the murder of John Kennedy. But wow. it's a cold case. It is a cold case at the Justice Department because um, now you thank God that you guys are old enough to remember this. But, you know, we trusted in 1963 when it happened, we trusted Dan Rather and we trusted Chet Huntley and David Brinkley and we just trusted Uncle Walter Cronkite. And uh, Dan Rather goes on television and he describes to a T, everything that Jackie's wearing, the pink outfit, the pillbox hat, everything that Connolly's wearing, everything that John Kennedy's wearing. And then he stops and he says, uh, the next scenes are so brutal, I just have to describe them. And then he says that the bullet hits him in the third shot. He said the third shot hits him in the back of the head and sends him violently forward. Well, we all believe this. Couldn't it? There were only three networks, but we didn't discover the truth until 1977 when Geraldo Rivera, 
had Dick Gregory and Bob Gruden on to show us mm -hmm. the actual Zapruder film. And now five million people storm Congress and they want a second investigation. And they hire a guy out of Philadelphia named Richard Sprague, and we have him on camera. The most definitive film ever made about Jim Garrison's investigation, which he solved and which was sabotaged by both the government and the media, uh, is called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's only $2 on Amazon. It will outlive Oliver's film, every documentary ever made. That's what they'll be studying 100 years from now. But we have Richard Sprague in that documentary. And this was a tough Philadelphia lawyer who sent a lot of mobsters to jail. He sent a lot of congressmen to jail. He hired six people, not one from the CIA, not one from the FBI. And he said, that's because these are the people we were going to investigate. Now, you guys might remember something called the Church Committee in the 70s. Well, the Church Committee in the 70s uncovered 400 CIA assets in Congress, in the Senate, in the newspapers, all there for the purpose of creating fake news to continue the fake wars like the Cold War, like Vietnam, like Iraq, like the war in the Philippines. They are all fake. And the Second World War, uh, the, the Second World War, we had a depression. I was a kid at the time, six years of age in 1939 in Canada. Came from a very dysfunctional home before it was popular. Deported twice from the United States, by the way. Out of work, out of work when I was 46. And the next year when I'm 47, I have the number one show in American television. You talked earlier, Ben, about things happened by accident. There's a glorious right. accident. Anyway, um, Jim Garrison is on camera saying, John, listen, Russia is no threat to the United States. They lost 25 million people. They had 80% of their infrastructure destroyed. The threat to America was peace. He said, all you have to do is listen to Eisenhower. Now, you guys are old enough, I hope, to remember in 1960 when John Kennedy is taking office, up comes Dwight Eisenhower, and he warns us of the rives of the military-industrial banking complex that is taking over this country. They have taken it over. Everything that went wrong with this country happened on the... November 22nd, 1963. I mean everything. And if you open that Pandora's box, you will be able to restore a vanishing democracy to this once absolutely brilliant country, the country that I wanted to come to as an or orphan kid. So yeah, I could go on and on, but I, I, I want to hear some questions from you because I'm sure you guys have dozens. 
Okay, so first I'm I actually wanna, enjoying wanna, this. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, first I want to say that I was actually born five weeks before that assassination. Ah. Uh. Okay, so I was born in '63, so I was literally five weeks old, and as a child growing up in this country, my dad watched that all happen and unfold. Yes, and he did. we had we had lots of conversations and dinner table talk mm -hmm. all about this kind of stuff. And that's, I mean, you know, how do you learn about conspiracy theories when you're six? It's not a theory. It's a fact. Back then it was. The, the word theory, the word theory was created by the CIA to discredit people like Mark Lane, who wrote Rush to Judgment. Are you familiar with that book? I've, well, heard, I've it, heard of I it. Not read it. Yeah. Okay. So now, at the time, the uh, government who was trashing these brilliant researchers, May Brussel, Mark Lane, and a bunch of other them, who were trying to disclose the facts to the public, and in order to try to discredit them, they come up with the word assassination theory and calling Mark Lane somebody who's trying to create a cottage industry and make money out of this. Mark Lane went to 53 publishers in America and couldn't get Rush to Judgment published. And it, Bertrand wow. Russell, uh, an English poet and philosopher, and you love the fact that he's a poet because both of you guys are poets. He, he was invited to England and paid $1,500 to publish his book there. And it became a monster bestseller there that it was brought back to the United States, where it again became a monster bestseller. Now, I, uh, Eisenhower, when he warned us of the military-industrial complex, what Jim Garrison said to me, he said, John, listen, you have the... Uh, Depression was not was only ended by the war. So if you have a million and a half people coming back and they go to work uh, uh, making automobiles or making uh, uh, vacuum cleaners or making stoves or whatever, you can only make one new one a year. But you can make a new bomb every minute that costs ten or twenty thousand dollars. And then if you can find a bunch of countries to dump them on, a lot of people in the munitions business are going to become mega billionaires. And that's where we are today. We have become what Ronald Reagan used to call the Soviet Union. You remember what he used to call the Soviet Union? The evil empire. And if you don't see it, you're looking at America with Helen Keller's eyes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nope. Yep, well, absolutely I, right I like there. that analogy. Okay. So no. now, first, uh, let me tell you the first time I met uh, uh, Jim Garrison. God, I'm glad I'm talking to somebody who's a little older. I have 5,000 Facebook friends, and that's the maximum that Zuckerberg will allow us. Okay. 4,500 of them are like Jeff. They were not born when this ha happened. Mm -hmm. All of them, all of them, anywhere from 21 to 51 like you guys, 
are so interested in the murder of John Kennedy because they know they sent it somewhere out there in the ether. They sent something horrible has happened to this country, and it has. One of the first horrible things, when John Kennedy was alive in 1963, there were 1,500 different owners of media. And you owned a television station, a newspaper, a radio station. You could only own five. And the one who destroyed the free press in this country was the worst president in American history. And that was Bill Clinton. Because in 1966, he signed the Communications Act that put all of this into the hands of five major corporations. There is no longer a free press in the United States to begin with. It's a controlling institution. Yes, it absolutely is. And you know, yeah. uh, uh, Mark Twain, who was America's greatest writer and most brilliant, um, he said during the first fake Philippine War, the Spanish-American War, we had were we murdered two hundred thousand Filipinos for God's sake, for no reason at all, and it was only opposed by Mark Twain, a writer. God bless writers. God bless you guys. You're writers, okay? I'm an agnostic, but still, God bless you. He said, "If you do not read America's newspapers, you're uninformed. But if you do read America's newspapers," You're misinformed. Well, that's what it is like today. And uh, before we went in the air, Ben said something interesting about all the wonderful things that happened to him by, happened by accident. Mark Twain also said, the two greatest days in your life are first the day you're born and the day you discover why. Isn't that terrific? Now, I remember the day I discovered why, as this kid who came to this country illegally was deported twice. It was in the 50s when I discovered the best late night host in American television, and that was Jack Parr. Do any of you remember Jack Parr? I do remember I Jack Parr. Oh, my, well, Steve Allen was the first, okay? And Steve was mm -hmm. wonderful, the real talent. Jack Parr was by far the best. He was the wittiest, the most charming. He had intellects on his show. He had comics on his show. He made stars on his show. But he opened his show doing a funny monologue. And I thought, you know, my God, I want to be a host of a show like that. So I'm going to make myself a comic. I had no training mm -hmm. at it, none whatsoever. So what I did is I got a dozen and a half albums of all the greatest comics in America, Bob Newhart, Shelley Berman, Mort Saul, Henny Youngman, you name them, I got them. And I listened to them. But they were all individuals. And I'm not an individual. <laughs> I don't have any style. I don't have, I'm just ordinary. Okay. It's just me. There, uh, there was nothing about me that's different. The only thing that was different 
was I was from Canada. Well, that's nothing. But it was at the time of all the, the black riots looking for voting rights in this country and all of that. And by the way, my mentor when I started as a comic in this business was Red Fox. He was mm. my, yes. Wow. He was, yeah, he wow. was my lifelong friend. My wife introduced to, me to him. My wife was a band singer with Earl Father Hines. Uh, Earl Father Hines was part of the Louis Armstrong Sextet, most famous sextet in America. Mm -hmm. But he, he didn't like Louis womanizing and drugs and stuff. So we went to San Francisco, created a band. She became the band singer. And his best friends were Dick Gregory. Do you remember Dick Gregory? The I name remember the name. Uh, no, I don't. Oh, my God. Dick Gregory was the black Bob Hope back yep. in the late 50s. Tell you a quick story about Dick. Okay. And then there was Red Fox, okay? And Red Fox could only work the Chicklin circuit where he was absolutely fin filthy. But I knew that he could be clean on camera. So when I got my first entertainment show, I put him on the show. And his name is John Sanford. Does that begin mm -hmm. to ring the bell? So mm -hmm. Norman Lear and Bud York, a new great Stanford and Son, saw him. And there's an English show called Steptoe and Son. And they borrowed that show, make it an American show, and put Red Fox in it. And Red became my lifelong friend till the day that he died right here in Las Vegas, where I now live. Anyway, I was, I was getting... Oh, and Dick Gregory. In 1966, I did my first comedy album. But what what happened is, in order to create an act, I thought, I'm not, I didn't even know if I, I was witty spontaneously, but not on purpose. I could tell you a couple of cute stories you might want to hear about that. How I gave up God when I was 12 years of age is a funny story. Um, I, I just... I sat down and I wrote this first line. My name is John Barber and I'm coming to you through the courtesy of the NAACP, the National Association of Canadian People, okay? And my mother was Jewish and my father was Scotch, which can prove to you that you can mix anything with Scotch. And it was really, <laughs> really tough when I was growing up. And I, and I had to go to synagogue, and I'm the only kid with a plaid skull cap. And you had no idea how tough it is to play Havanagil on the bagpipes. I mean, geez. So I became successful at it. And do, do any of you remember Merv Griffin? Yeah, yep. oh, yeah. Okay, he had this great talk show on Westinghouse. And when he left that show to go to CBS, he recommended me as his replacement. And they put me under contract to $600 a week. And it happened. And I was unemployed. And my wife just got pregnant with a child that I did not want at first. And the reason I didn't want it, because it was so bad in my household. My father and mother actually had physical knockdown fights. 
1939, my father thought, God, the Germans must be easier than this. So I joined the Canadian Army, went over and fought the Germans, lost half its stomach, won the order of the British Empire, and became one of the most successful advertising agencies in Scotland and decided to never come home. He abandoned us. And my mother brought about 18 new men into our house that she introduced as my uncle, okay. And they came there just to board with her and beat her. And I was out in the streets when I was six, for God's sake. And I used to go to the Manor Theater for a nickel. And I fell in love with American movies. And it was, it was Mr. Smith goes to Washington and there's Jimmy Stewart winning the cause. I, my God, that's where I wanted to be. So when I was 17, I came to the United States specifically to be a gambler. I had no intention of getting into a show business. That all happened by accident. So I don't know quite where it is that I'm going with this particular story. So let me just put it on pause. I'm going to tell you about the first time I met Jim Garrison. Because in 1969, he arrested Clay Shaw. Now, you've heard, I think there have been two or three district attorneys in New York and maybe in Florida, I guess, or in Washington, who've arrested Donald Trump. And not one of them has said to the public, there will be a conviction. They'll just say, nobody's above the law and we'll follow the law. Well, the, nobody's above the law's big, biggest crap of shit ever dumped on American public, but so much so it could fill the Grand Canyon. But in any event, they never said that. Jim Garrison arrested Clay Shaw in 1969 as on camera in our film saying, there will be convictions when we get to court. There's money exchange. We have the shooters. We have everything. Now, he can't get into court because the government is stopping him. They're calling him a kook. They're calling him an egomaniac. And I say to my friends, now I'm a street kid. Okay, so maybe I have some street smarts. I said, listen, if he has nothing, why don't they get out of his way so he can go in and fall on his ass? And they didn't get out of his way until January 29, 1969. Serendipity, the day of my son's birth. And by my way, my son is uh, the co-executive producer of a show called Criminal Minds. Jim Garrison mm -hmm. lost the conspiracy case. Because it was very difficult. Listen, in those days, if you say CIA, what are they talking about? It's all James Bond stuff, for God's sake. This is how smart Garrison was. He got 10 years of his tax records so he could prove it. But the, they couldn't quite believe it. But he got a conviction for perjury against Clay Shaw in eight minutes because wow. Clay Shaw said he did not no, Lee Harvey Oswald or David Ferry. When Perry Raymond Russo was at a house where they were plotting crossfire in Dealey Plaza, and when Shaw was arrested, he ran to Jim Garrison, David Perry, Perry Raymond Russo, and said, I was there. I will be your key witness. And he became the key witness. Okay, now I'm going to tell you something about the key witness and Jim Garrison.
when I got, I'm successful as a comic. In uh, those days, there were 20,000 Chicanos marching in Los Angeles and all around the country where they could challenge television and radio licenses. And ABC was about to lose their license to a bunch of Mexicans. And they didn't want to lose the license to anybody. So they got rid of their comic strips and their movies. And they decided to do a 90-minute news information show. And I was working at a club called the Ice House in Pasadena with a young Steve Martin. Remember Steve Martin? Mm-hmm. And this handsome Mexican, Mario Machado, the best looking human being I ever saw. And he's Mexican and he's the most popular Mexican in Los Angeles. And everybody thinks he's going to get the job. So after I do my set with Steve, I come off and he comes over and he shakes my hand. He says, God, you're funny. He said, you know, I just left ABC and there's a producer there named Brad Lockman and they're going to do this morning show and you should go and audition. And I said, Mario, it's you. They want a Chicano there. He said, John, listen, I'm going to tell you something honest. I am a great reader. I have a good voice. I'm a great reader. But I can't ad lib. I just can't. I'm just, I have to read. Okay. And you're a stand-up comic and you're funny standing or sitting. And all of your act is political. So go over and audition, get the job. And I got the job. So the week before, I'm Robert Goulet's opening act in Vegas. Bobby Darren's opening act in Vegas. And my first my first guests are Muhammad Ali and Jane Fonda and Cesar Chavez. Now, I read Mark Lane's book. And that, boy, he cut the balls out of the Warren Commission. And I figured, well, all the lawyers read that in Washington, D.C. They'll go and dismember Congress and Jim Garrison will get a good hearing. So I never booked Mark Lane. But one day after the show, I go into a bookstore. It's called Edmund Bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard. And there's a book called Heritage of Stone. Jim Garrison, I think, is that the same guy? So Jeff, Ben, Leo, I pick it up and I start to read it. My God, I discover that Mr. Garrison has to take time, life to the Supreme Court to get the Zapruder film to show the jury. And there's a forensic pathologist who's called as part of the defense for Clay Shaw. And in cross-examination, he says there's no autopsy because a general identified as Curtis LeMay, a public, public John Kennedy hater, stopped the autopsy. And it's on and on with this kind of information. So what do I do? I call New Orleans the next morning. And I expect a secretary to answer the phone. And it's a deep, beautiful voice. And I said, could I speak to Mr. Garrison, please? And he said, this is he. Oh, my God, Mr. Garrison, I'm so excited. My name is John Barber. And I just read your book, Heritage of Stone. And I had this. And then he interrupts me. He says, oh, John, you must be the second one. I only sold two copies. Well, 
How could you not like a guy like that, okay? And I said, listen, I have this 90-minute show. I'll interview you for a half an hour. And then the phones will just be lit up by people wanting to talk to you. And he said, well, you'll never get away with it. And I said, listen, I've just, I, I'm the most popular morning show in America. And I've just won my first Emmy. And he interrupts me again. He said, hold on a second. You won your first. You expect to win a few more? I mean, my God, I love the guy. So he says to me, do you know it's only four years, John, after the Warren report? Did you see the Harris poll last week? I said, no, I don't read polls. He said, well, 82% of all Americans four years afterwards do not believe that Lee Harvey Oswald could have acted alone or could have done it by himself, or could have done it at all. And mm -hmm. I said, listen, if the percentage is that high, why aren't they storming the barricades of bullshit and getting it over with? And he said, hold a minute, you didn't see the second question. So I said, well, what's the second question? The second question was, would you like to see a deeper investigation with both the CIA and the FBI being questioned. And what do you think the percentage was? And I said, well, 40 or 50%. He said, no, 20%. And I gasped. And he said, what does it tell you about the American people? And I said, Mr. Garrison, I don't know what it says about the American people, but I'll tell you what it says about my mother. I know what my mother did in the rumble seat of the car and i know what she did on the pool table or i know what she did in the alley or in the bedroom to conceive me but don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin well he howled he said jeez that sounds like mark twain for god's sake and that eventually became the title of my book that's where the title of the book came from. So anyway, he agrees to come on the show and I'm fired. But you know what? I just thought that was show business. You have a job for a week or two and it's over with. But I was the first one in America to review movies on the news. And mm -hmm. um, I was the first one in America to have a movie reviewed all the way to the Supreme Court because of the fairness doctrine. And then I'll tell you why the fairness doctrine disappeared. Would you like to hear about that singular movie or why the fairness doctrine disappeared? Absolutely. Which one do you want to hear first? Well, he's asking the you which movie. one you want to hear about. The movie. <laughs> I want to hear it okay. I want to hear it all. This is fucking intense. <laughs> I know. I don't even want to ask him any questions. I just want him to keep going. <laughs> okay. okay. The movie was called Soylent Green with Charlton yep. Heston, Moses, okay? And uh, have any of you heard of the movie? Absolutely. I've seen it yep. a couple of times. Okay. Then tell the audience what it's about. No, you. Okay. Leo, <laughs> did you see the movie? I did not. I've heard it and... Uh, yeah. Okay. okay. I'll tell you what it's about. And it takes place... In 2022, strangely enough, but it was made in the middle 70s. It's because it's a movie about America running out of food, which looks like it could happen now. But America is not going to run out of dead people. 
So they figure out a way to process the corpses into little green crackers. So that you Jenny can needs to explain it better than I ever okay. So we could all have so we could all have three squares a day. Okay. And it's just god awful. Now it's like Don Rickles. If you attack something, you're gonna get laughs. But the truth is, I wanted to find great movies that I could share with people so they could have some enjoyment in their life. But this one was just so goddamn awful. And I was really apologetic about the review. I was getting big laughs. And you're not supposed to get laughs in a newsroom. But I said, you know, movies made with 500 people, all talented, and they don't intend it to be a piece of crap. I mean, that just it just somehow doesn't work out that way. And I began to feel guilty. So I said to the audience live, you know what? Maybe I should say something nice about this film. And so the news group applauds a little bit. And I said, the sets are absolutely beautiful, which is just a tacky thing to say. And I felt horrible because I was lying. And so then I said, but the sets would have been more beautiful if they'd been placed in front of the actors. <laughs> well, they went crazy. They went crazy. So they get a call from the producer of the film at Fox, and they calls Bob Howard, the general manager, three times in the five years that I was there winning three Emmys in a row for my reviews, three times I was fired uh, for some of the reviews that I wanted to do. I don't want to get into that. But Bob Howard had to keep bringing me back for two reasons. One, the public loved what I did, and he said his wife would leave him. If, she, if he got funny, he's so goddamn cute and funny, you know. So it, anyway, the producer calls Bob Howard and said, get rid of Johnny Barber. Otherwise, you get no more. You get no more com uh, commercials from Fox, I, uh, 20th Century Fox. Bob Howard says, no. And then he says, listen, I'm demanding fairness doctrine, fairness time under the fairness doctrine. And he says, you don't qualify. He said, well, I'm taking you guys to court. So he went to court in Los Angeles. He spent a year in court in Los Angeles. They eventually turned him down. He went to the courts in California, and he spent two years in the courts in California. This guy wouldn't give up. His name was Brown. He wouldn't give up. And then he spent three years taking it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled upon it after five years and you know what the chief justice said to him when he said, we deny you uh, equal time under the fairness doctrine? Do you know what he said to the producer? What's that? John Barber's reviews are of absolutely no public importance. <laughs> really? Yeah, really, really. It's in the right now to how they trash the fairness doctrine. Perry Raymond wow. Russo. Perry Raymond Russo, who was Garrison Sheep's witness, gets a call from a producer at, the, at NBC who was assigned to NBC by the CIA and the FBI. All of this is cataloged factually in the second version of the film. And he calls Perry Raymond Russo in New Orleans, and he says... 
Perry, where would you like to live if you had a chance to live anywhere in America? And Perry says, oh, my God, everybody wants to live in Los Angeles. And he says, what would you like to do in Los Angeles? He was just a cab driver then. He said, well, I've always sort of liked accounting. I'd like to work at some kind of insurance firm or something. He said, you have a job for $50,000 a week. But what you have to do is we're bringing a camera down there. We've made room reservations in a motel. You have to go on camera and you have to tell the world that you lied to Jim Garrison about seeing Clay Shaw with David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald. So Perry says, okay. But God, now he's scared to death. So he calls Mr. Garrison. He says, Mr. Garrison, what should I do? And Jim, bless his heart, he said, listen, if you want $50,000 a year, you take the, the job, Perry. I don't blame you. But would you do me a favor? And Perry said, what's that? Would you wear a wire? So Perry wore a wire. And there you have NBC coming down there the most famous murder case in the history of the United States of America being sabotaged by NBC, for God's sake. They should have lost their license and all of them been put in jail. And it's all on tape. Now, Garrison is one of the most brilliant lawyers in the world, so he has a fairness doctrine in his hand, and he sues them. And of course, he doesn't get any financial reward, but they have to give him a half an hour of late night on NBC, uninterrupted by the CIA or NBC. That's in our film or parts of it. And you can Google it on YouTube. And there is Mr. Garrison at a blackboard proving that Lee Harvey Oswald not only did not kill the president, that it was the Central Intelligence Agency. And I mean, and what happened is that Ronald Reagan, who came on uh, when, when I interviewed Muhammad Ali, you know, people are heroes after the fact. Everyone wanted Muhammad Ali either dead or in prison because he wouldn't go over and kill yellow people at the height of the Vietnam War. He said, yellow people ain't my problem. My problem is white people. They absolutely hated him. Only other two other people would him put him on camera. That was, um, who was the guy? Howard Cosell, the sports Howard kid. Cosell. And Jack Parr and myself. Okay. And he, and because of the fairness doctrine, I could not speak up about the fake Gulf of Tonkin resolution that created the fake war in Vietnam because they claimed the fishing boat tried to sink the American Fifth Fleet, for Christ's sake. I mean, that's such bloody nonsense, okay? But, uh, because, and then he's, so he, Reagan comes on. Oh, I'll tell you, can you see my wall back here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My wife's favorite picture, I don't know if you can see that. It's Ronald Reagan. Oh, that's very smart, Leo. Thank you. Ronald Reagan is standing up, and I am sitting down. He's running for his second term of office as governor of California. 
So he comes in with four or five people, including his publicist, and it's about nine or 10 minutes before actual airtime. And his publicist comes over and he looks down at my desk and he says, where are the questions? And I said, what questions? He said, well, you got to have a piece of paper with a bunch of questions. I said, no, I don't have any written questions. Well, the governor's, the governor's not going to talk to you unless he knows what you're going to ask him. I said, listen, we're just going to sit down, have a conversation like we're at home, for God's sake. So he goes back and he tells Governor Reagan that there are no questions. So Reagan's about 15 feet away and he does this. Like, goodbye. And then the guy comes back, takes my hand, shakes it, and he said, my apologies, we're leaving. I said, that's okay. And he said, what do you mean that's okay? I said, hey, we're live. We take phone calls. You know what I'm going to do when you guys are out the door? I'm going to tell the public what you were just talking about, that the government won't come on because I don't have pre-planned questions, okay? Then I'm going to open the phones as the governor waves goodbye to me and goes out the door. And let's see what they have to say. So he rushes back to Reagan. Reagan literally rushes here. And now we're about a, had 30 seconds from airtime. And he's standing up like this. And he's, oh, John, I have no idea what either one of us is going to say. But this is going to be the best interview I ever did. And it was. I mean. Yep. And, I, and I predicted this empty suit was, yeah, I mean, finding out who he really was politically or as a person or his beliefs was like shoveling smoke. He was so hard to pin down. But I said, he's like Cary Grant. The camera loved the man. And I said, that's the next president of the United States. So when he got to be president and he heard Jim Garrison late night, he said, oops, that's it. First thing I'm going to do, bang. There goes the fairness doctrine. Now, insight into Jim Garris. Something Red Fox said to me when I kept talking about heroes. And, of course, my hero was Jim Garrison. I didn't even know him. I just talked to him on the phone. And Red Fox said to me, he said, John, heroes ain't born. They're cornered. Okay? So... I told Jim that, and he laughed, and he said, well, it's true, John, because I believe my government. I said, what do you mean you believe the government? He said, I was an FBI agent. I was in the Air Force. I was one of the first people at Dachau to liberate that death camp, for God's sake. And I said, it was, as Ben said earlier, before the show, these things by accident, he's on a plane sitting next to Congressman Hale Boggs. Has any one of you ever heard of Hale Boggs? No. Okay. He was the only dissenting member of the Warren Commission. But his dissent is not published in the Warren Commission. He's on a plane with Jim. And he said, Jim, you know, I'm a hunter, you know. And I'm going to be off to Alaska soon to do some hunting of those big bears. But I'm telling you, I saw that man look at our cannel dago rifle, that crooked set. That could, kid couldn't shoot a dead rabbit. And Mr. Garrison said, you mean there's something fishy? And he said, get yourself the 26 volumes. Jim got three sets of the 26 volumes. 
in his office, in his car, and in his home. And he memorized them. And the only reason he went after Lee Harvey Oswald, because that's his jurisdiction. That's where Lee Harvey Oswald was. He was originally going to arrest David Ferry, who was a pilot in Dallas. But David Ferry committed suicide twice. He left two suicide notes. So Jim said, well, before Clay Shaw leaves three suicide notes, I better arrest him. He, and he did. And uh, this is how smart he was. Clay Shaw was a very prominent New Orleans businessman. He was a leading socialite. But when he was arrested, and it's all on camera, you see this degenerate, sadomasochistic, pornographic, homosexual material. And Jim Garrison says to his staff, you are not telling anybody about this and you're not going to tell the press about this because this has nothing to do with Clay Shaw's involvement as being the handler of Lee Oswald. We will save that for the perjury trial. I think I can win this the uh, uh, conspiracy trial, but in case not, I will win the perjury trial. So, of course, he loses the conspiracy trial. Now, what he also has, he has three $20 male hookers signing affidavits that they all got $20 to have homosexual sex with David Ferry, Clay Shaw, Lee Harvey Oswald, and, of course, Jim Garrison's uh, chief, uh, Perry Raymond Russo. That they were all homos, homosexuals or bisexuals, whatever you were. And he also had a professor from a university who I won't name because he might still be alive, who lived with Clay Shaw for an entire year and then had a transgender operation. And Clay Shaw kicked him out of the house because he didn't want to be living with a woman. So he was, he was another there, right? And then he had a guy who was offered $25,000 to murder Jim Garrison. And the reason he thought about murdering Jim Garrison, his daughter was so deathly ill, the CIA promised him they would get the best doctors in the world to treat his ill daughter. Mm -hmm. And he said, he said, honest to God, he just, but he felt the murder of more, the death of John Kennedy was more important than probably the death of his own daughter. Okay. So he went to Jim. And so all of these witnesses were there. So when Jim knew it would be like a Perry Mason show, because if Clay Shaw gets on the stand and starts seeing these homosexual hookers, getting into the witness stand too. He's going to jump up and say, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, because he knows he's going to end up being a bitch in somebody's prison, okay? But shortly thereafter, the government steps in, literally, and prevents that trial from happening because they knew he would squeal. And one of the memos in our film is, we have to get Clay Shaw legal help. Otherwise, Jim Garrison is going to win this case. I mean, he was unbelievable. Mr. Garrison was absolutely and totally un unbelievable. I could go on. 
You know what? I'll tell now, you. Yeah, if you if go if ahead. you're going to compare Garrison to somebody uh, in in what's going on in the world today, who would you compare him to? It's incomparable. There's nobody. America has no more heroes. You know, when I came down here in the fifties, there were fifty <coughs> people of all shades that I loved and admired. You know, there was Milton Berle. On you know, I watched Uncle Milty. And guess who replaced him as the number one show in television? Guess. A Catholic priest. Fulton Sheen, for God's sake. Really? I, I, yes. Wow. And it became the number one show. Now, I'm an agnostic, but I still watch them because it was so interesting. You hear the words, to hear them tell the stories about the Bible and stuff like that. There are all kinds of people like that. They don't exist. Look at look at what happened to Julian Assange. Mm -hmm. He reveals to the world the war crimes of our government and our military and has to flee the country. And then Ed Snowden, who himself is with the CIA, comes forward and tells us that we are not people anymore. We are only numbers. Mm -hmm. We are not citizens anymore. We are only yep. consumers. He asked to flee the country. I have a line in the movie that, you know, truth tellers have to run for their lives while liars are running for office in America. But remember, what was it? The, uh, the, uh, the Pentagon Papers. And I think in the 70s, the guy who released the Pentagon Papers became a national hero. I mean, he was on time and on life. There are no more heroes in America, not one. And you know, if I was still, let me tell you something. If I was real, when I about real people, it was the most popular show in the history of American television. As a matter of fact, it did more in three years when I was running the show than 60 Minutes did in 30 years. We got the Missing Children's Act passed for John Walsh. And you all know who John Walsh is mm -hmm. because his son was decapitated when he was kidnapped. Yep. I got the uh, Navajo Code Talkers, a presidential citation. President Reagan came on the show. The only celebrity that I would allow on the show in three years. And then I played a major role. And it's just a few days ago, there were 100,000 people visiting that Washington Memorial, Vietnam Memorial. Well, back then, nobody wanted it built, first of all, because it was a very unpopular war, and it was designed by an Asian American. So there's two strikes against her there. But I did a story of a school teacher in New Mexico who... His son and the father debated whether or not he should go to Canada, where I'm from. And the son, who was 21, said, Dad, I cannot flee the country I was born in. I'm going to go to Vietnam. A week later, he was shot dead. The love of the life of the mother and father. And so what the father did, he quit school, took all his money, and on a mountaintop in New Mexico, where he and his son used to hunt, he built his own memorial to his son. And, you know, I keep saying I'm not a believer. 
but there is serendipity, there is divine intervention. It was never, never on the news, but from all around the country, mothers and fathers who lost their sons in Vietnam came by car, by bus, by plane, by truck, by everything, bus, to bring pictures of their sons to this guy's memorial. And pretty soon the mountainside is covered. They had to build walkways with lights on them and everything. Soon they had built a cathedral. Well, uh, Senator Udall in Utah calls me after I do the story. He said, John, can you get me 50 copies of your story? And I said, yes. He said, we're going to show this to 50 senators and we're going to build that goddamn wall. And 30 days later, they passed the law to build that wall. So that's the kind of impact that this show had. And I'm very, very proud of it. But if I still had that impact, I would urge every single American not to vote. Because every time they vote, they say, well, we're voting for the lesser evil. I don't give a shit if it's a lesser no. evil, ill and evil. Now, let's say, uh, 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 let's see, I think Trump got 170 million votes or seven. How many votes did he get? 172 million. Biden got 81, supposedly. Okay, so there's 152 million. What if you have 152 million Americans who don't vote? And the only ones are the 500 senators and Congress people and a couple of bankers. They're going to be scared shitless. I mean, holy smokes, they're going to realize the system has to be changed because we have. The we system have, doesn't have to be changed. It has to be annihilated. You're, you know, that's the best word. It should be assassinated. This is it has to be annihilated. I mean, you know, <laughs> it does. You know, I, you know, I don't want to go political, but I'm going to say what I'm going to say right here and right now. Okay, come the next I, election, any any upcoming nobody that is currently in office should be elected again. Nobody. Okay, you know, I, I'll tell you, not that. one fucking person, not okay. one of them. Oh my God, Almighty! And I totally agree with you. We have. George Bush Sr. on camera, and this is during the time of Iran-Contra, and he's saying if the public knew what we were up to, they'd chase us down the street and hang us. I mean, he said it, okay? Here's a guy who was with the CIA who helped plan the murder of John Kennedy. It's all, and it's all documented in the film. I mean, the two boats that they used at the Bay of Pigs were na named after his wife and his oil company. I, 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 it's just, I mean, you're you're so right, Jeff. What a wonderful thing to say. It's you know, it, well, it, it, it's funny because you know, um, you know, these data breaches and all this stuff that's been going on. So you know, I had to sign up with this Experian thing to protect my credit and everything. Um, I did that this morning. Oh, my two God. hours later, I get a I get an email. Okay that um, it's internet surveillance. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. That, that, and I had to go in and look. And, and so apparently, and that's why I don't give a shit, you know, you want to survey me or, you know, surveillance oh me by the internet? Oh. I don't fucking care. You know oh. what I mean? There's a problem in this country, and the problem is at the top. Uh, yes, it's the, from the, if it's the from people the of this if the people of this country don't understand it, 
get their fucking heads out of the sand and yeah. start doing something about it. We're not going to be here anymore. Uh, well, it, well, as far as I'm concerned, it's already gone. Uh, and because no, I'm not that far in yet, I, I don't want to say that because that's well, that's because you know, what are you, 51, 49? I'm, I'm 60. Wow, you look really good for 60, by the way, you know. So, <laughs> so anyway, I'm 90. I know you are, yeah, yes, and and, and uh, uh, I should, but since uh, since you're so graphic in your language, <coughs> I will tell you. I have only said this once or twice to a couple of people and privately, but I will tell you this now. As everybody who meets me, and I play golf with guys who are at my age who've got new knees and new ankles and new teeth and everything, you know, and they said, Jesus, John, how do you stay so young? And I said, well, I discovered the fountain of youth. And then I just stare at them. And I said, well, what's the fountain of youth? I said, it is the frequent, pleasant expulsion of sperm. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with someone <laughs> of the opposite sex. Boom, 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 boom. So that will oh make the second time I've ever said that to <laughs> So basically what you're saying is the more sex you have, the longer you're going to live. Absolutely, because oh, if you want a great listen, and you hear that? Yeah, <laughs> if you want a great listen, you go to my site, John Bar uh, JohnBarbersWorld.com. When I am 88 years of age, I talk about what it's like to be 88 years of age. That line happens to be in there, along with another line about what keeps me angry is rage and laughter. And in this country, you can laugh at the things that you're raging at because they're so ridiculous. True. How unbelievably nice a man Jim Garrison was, his character. You know, I, I, I love people who are smart, who are intelligent, who are industrious, who are witty, but number five, best of all, is character. Character trumps them all. You can have none of the other stuff, but if you have character. Nobody had more character than Jim Garrison, even though he was only one of three geniuses that I had ever met. Uh, he had five children, and like John Kennedy... Mr. Garrison, being an A personality, was not always faithful to his wife. But he did marry the girl that he ran around with. But his wife was fantastic. And eventually, the pressures of being sabotaged and followed night and day by the FBI in cars and the local police in cars, the CIA in cars, everything tapped. Watched. They tried to trap him sexually a half a dozen times. They did everything. His wife couldn't take it anymore. Liz couldn't take it anymore. Now, Jim was a multimillionaire, not many millions, but, and when she divorced him, he gave it all to her, gave it all to her because he felt he could earn a living. Now, 
he won his second term as district attorney without even running because the people loved him. And now they really stepped in to trash him and the government sued him for non-payment of taxes. And they did all of that horrible, horrible stuff. He had to defend himself. And so eventually he lost and then he became a judge and he didn't even have to rerun as a judge. Okay. He's still a judge till the day he died. He's a, he's a judge. Anyway, his wife, of course, being lonely, she marries a guy who's a little younger than her, who spends all her money. And Jim is on his deathbed. Uh, and again, if you go to my site, johnbarbersworld.com, there's a 19-minute phone call of Mr. Garrison on his deathbed calling me the day I begin to go out to shoot the film. If that doesn't bring you to tears, you do not have a heart. It is just so beautiful. And as a matter of fact, when Oliver Stone was making his film, he calls Mr. Garrison and say, listen, I want to follow my film with a documentary. And Mr. Garrison says, no, Johnny Barber is going to do that. And Oliver Stone thinking, what the fuck, Johnny Barber's just tell local television, you know? I'm a there star. it is. That's why I wanted to hear that after yeah. this guy. And Mr. Garrison said, John Barber lost the two greatest shows in television, the morning show in Los Angeles, and he lost real people when he tried to tell my story on real people. So I have chosen him, listen to this, to be my Boswell to tell my story and that's and that's what happened so anyway he calls his kids and he says get me get my buddy in here his best buddy was a minister now jim's an atheist but his best friend the friend is a minister because his minister loved shakespeare and that was jim that's why the title of my third film is called john barber and william shakespeare's last word on the murder of JFK. And there's a reason for that at the end of the film. Anyway, and get a marriage license down here and get your mother into this, uh, this bedroom right now. So Liz comes into the bedroom and sees her. He's, he's beginning to shrivel, losing weight. And she said, are you calling me here to say goodbye? And he says, no, dear, I am not. I'm not going yet. She said, well, I'm here. I'm calling you here to say I do. And she says, I do what? That take this man to be my lawful husband. She says, are you fucking kidding me? It didn't work out the first time. It's not going to work out the second time. He says, well, you won't have to put up with me long. And I'm no in no position to help repopulate the world, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to be around too long. But I have a pension, dear. And when I go, you're going to get my pension. He died the day my film won the San Sebastian Film Festival Award. And she lived till her death on that pension. And that's the kind of character that Mr. Garrison had. Wow. 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 So I'm just like blown away. Here. Yeah, so, I, I'm you know, completely I, blown I, away. And we're running way over. Yeah, we're running ahead of time. But, you know, and, and I'm going to ask I'm going to ask this question. Um, only because I'm curious as to as to what you had to say, John. So, 
you know, you know the state of the world today and what's what's going on, okay? Uh, and the way that, you know, our elected officials uh, are operating and running in this country. As an American citizen and somebody that believes in the freedom that this country started as, as a, as a patriot, how do we fix this shit show? I don't think we'll be able to fix it because we, you know, the real sad thing is we are herd animals. That's why they call us sheep. And as sheep, we often pick the wrong shepherd. But if we pick the right shepherd all the way from Jesus to Gandhi to John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King or even Malcolm X or even John Lennon, for God's sake, who was also assassinated. They killed the peacekeepers. You know, they, they just murdered them. So, and, uh, you know, a great, re no revolution that succeeded ever, ever started from the bottom. They all start from the top. Uh, it, it, you know, Mao Zedong was very, prominent and Fidel Castro's father was a big landowner and a doctor and when Fidel Castro took over Cuba the first land he confiscated was his father's for God's sake you know and then the most interesting person to listen to in America and Google him is Gore Vidal Gore Vidal comes from the 1%. His father created the state of Oklahoma. He's like the sister-in-law, brother-in-law to Jackie Kennedy. So when you're at the top, you know how corrupt they are. He has two hours. It's, it's called Gore Vidal on American History. It's on YouTube. And it is witty and it is funny and it reveals the absolute total corruption of this country. I mean, he said that the Bill of Rights and the Constitution were written by the brightest men in America and we haven't heard from them since. <laughs> it is, it, it is hopeless. It is hopeless. I, you know, I have enormous admiration for so many Americans because there's such talent out there. And I'm talking to talent now. I'm talking to poets. I'm talking to writers. I mean, this land is filled with talent. But, you know, talent means nothing anymore. Professionalism doesn't mean anything anymore. I'm thrilled today if I can find competence. I can't find Hey, Jesus, is there anybody competent anymore? Oh, my God. No. Okay, so, you know, I, I, I want to say, you know, that that's the exact answer that I expected, you know, that it, it can't be fixed. Um, but my soul doesn't work that way. And I'm a firm believer that if something can't be fixed, it can certainly be rebuilt. Oh, yes, absolutely. But, but you want to know some crucial... I hate this quote, a Russian president said, there is no need for the Soviet Union to be dropping bombs from the United States. That country is going to self-destruct. And we're self-destructing. It's our leaders that are doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love what it is you said about our leaders. 
Uh, uh, do we have time for a, a quick story? Maybe uh, I, it, I think it's yep. a line. Yep. In my, it's a line in my last film. I mean, uh, I had I, a friend of mine who is a billionaire lady used to write for Donald Trump because she was anti-abortion and thought that Trump would be, but she quit after a while. Didn't vote for him and didn't vote for Biden. But she says to me, she said, you know, I am all for DeSantis. Because DeSantis says if the New York DA issues an arrest warrant to Trump in Florida, I'm not going to have him extradited. And I said, you idiot. She said, I'm no idiot. I'm a lawyer. I said, that makes you more of an idiot. I said, you have to know real people. You said you work for Trump and you don't know him. Do you think Trump is going to make DeSantis look good and hide behind his apron? If he is arrested, he's going to jump on that damn plane with the big initials Trump on it. He's going to tell everybody in the world, meet me in New York and watch me go in and get mug shots, okay? And you know what he's going to do the next day? He's going to put them on fucking mugs and he's going to make $6 million. Three times he's been arrested and three times within a fucking week, He's made six to eight million dollars, more fucking money than he ever made with his goddamn golf courses. Rest me again, for Christ's sake, okay? Because that's going to pay his legal bills. So I mention this without the profanity of my third film. <laughs> I do also say, almost with Jeff, what Jeff says, that when I look at Biden, or anyone in Congress, or anyone in the Senate, anyone uh, speaking, talking head in the news, any CEO in this country, I think every one of them should have a fucking mugshot. Mm. That's, yep. that's, that's it. That's it. So there you go. Yep. Reopen Alcatraz. Well. <laughs> Well, I'm telling you, if you put everybody in Alcatraz from government and uh, at Wall Street who deserved to be there, the fucking thing would sink into the ocean. <laughs> well, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> and no, hey, that's good. That's, that's good. It's like that old joke about uh, uh, what do you call two lawyers lying at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean? A big Yeah, good stuff beginning anyway yep. i'm sorry that we went over but i'm sorry no, 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 you're, no. Fine. you're fine hey listen uh maybe before uh christmas after the uh 25th of uh, uh of november because i'm going down saturday the 25th to the uh, Cir uh, circle town center theater five on that saturday at one o'clock three thirty and 7.30 to do a meet and greet with the people there, maybe take pictures with them, uh, do a Q&A with them. But after that, I'd love to come back and just tell you show business stories. Because I, I know. Yeah, I mean, you, your we didn't even talk about like, any of that. We didn't even talk about any of that, which is fine. You know, but I do want to say, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna try and send you a friend request on Facebook, but you're going to have to bump a 30-year-old. 
Uh, well, listen, uh, <laughs> that, that is funny. That's funny. Uh, about once every three weeks, I get trashed by somebody because they don't find something I say very, very funny. You go to my Facebook, I mean, you'll read a lot of really, really funny stuff. And by the way, you send me your address. I will send you an autographed co copy of the very best book ever written about anyone in show business. And I was the first host of the gong show. Yes, and you were. Yeah. And you yeah. don't have to start from the beginning to the end. You just find there in the chapters, the gong show, you'll read five of the funniest, most informative pages. Right. Well, read. I will be reaching out because I would love a copy of that book. Your yeah. inspiration, yep. my man. Uh, well, thank you Absolutely. so much. Listen, I'm going to be. Uh, I'm going to live to be on. I'm going to live to be 115. I'm going to give you 120. Oh well, that would be even nicer. That would be you know? Yeah. Oh my wow. God. Well, you guys are. You you guys are a delight. Honestly, that's wonderful to be here. Well, thank you. well you're thank an amazing you. person. So, you know. What a life. You made this show very, very easy for us. <laughs> well, I had I had questions. I had no questions. Oh, oh, I didn't even get to that. Yeah. Oh, I had, it's fine. I did listen, we never have questions. We have show notes. We throw them away in the first five minutes. Yeah. That's, that's funny. And we have a conversation. And, uh, that that's a lost art now, a conversation. Unfortunately, I didn't allow you much of a conversation with my monologue. But no, that's all right. Just that's it, we it, wanted to hear what you had to say. Well, it just pours out of me because I don't get a chance often to talk to people who really care. As, um, as far as I know, Facebook didn't shut us down. So <laughs> no, no, no. Um, he said he loved. Yeah. Uh, before we go, uh, just a quick question. What's the story on the uh, Superman poster in the back? Oh, well, I oh, knew you were going to ask that. Uh, yeah, well, uh, it's a very quick story. My first argument with George Slaughter when I started Real People is that he wanted uh, Dudley Moore's girlfriend, I can't remember her name offhand, to be uh, the uh, uh, hostess, co-hostess on the show. And she's about six feet three, a fantastic singer, worked in Vegas all the time. You'll know the name if I mention it. And of course, you know Dudley Moore, this, mm -hmm. this midget Englishman, very funny, who could play the piano. But she's about three feet taller than him. And I said, you cannot have that lady. First of all, this is real people. She's not real people, okay? She's a star. And George says, but God, she's beautiful and people will tune in. I said, you know what? She will detract from the stories because everybody looking will say, Jesus Christ, what does she see in that midget in bed? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, so, anyway, I, so I go home and I tell my son, my son's uh, 10 years old. And um. I said, Christopher, I think I had my first argument with George Slaughter over this singer. And he said, well, how about Sarah Purcell? And I said, who's Sarah Purcell? And my son laughs because 
she was on Channel 7 on the morning show, one of my replacements with Regis Philbin, and I never watched it after they fired me. She said, but she's the new co-host on that show. So I watched, and she was adorable. So I set up a meeting with her and George Slaughter. And so she comes in, and in five minutes, he signs her instead of Dudley's girlfriend. And then he calls me and my wife and uh, Christopher in. And to thank Christopher, this mm -hmm. autograph poster of Superman. Oh, wow. Isn't that fantastic? Very wow. cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I'm glad you asked. And, you know, often when I do my own show, I wear a Superman sweater because my son loves it. I nice. wear it. So. Nice. My billionaire friend bought me this. She thought I could look good in yellow. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, I, I don't I, I don't wear a lot of yellow. I just look like a pea stain. <laughs> well, anyway, fellas, I'm sorry if I I dragged you over. No, not no, at all. Not awesome. Okay. Well, uh, no. we'll wrap things up. Uh, so uh, I want to thank everybody for watching this fine evening. You know how to find me. Just Google me. Uh, but I run a little thing called the Dorkening Podcast Network. Uh, head on over to thedorkening.com. You can learn more. A lot of awesome people doing a lot of awesome stuff. And uh, John, uh, I know you mentioned you're uh, uh, maxed out on Facebook, uh, but where do you like people interacting with you on social media? Is it mainly Facebook? Do you use uh, like Twitter or anything? Or No, I, because I don't know how to do that stuff. You know, I'm I'm Gomer Pyle when it comes to that stuff. It's just, <laughs> it, 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 it's just Facebook. But if they, if they can send me messages on Facebook or uh, my email is John, J-O-H-N, Sarita, S-A-R-I-T-A, John Sarita at AOL.com. And I would answer all of my emails. I get lots of them, but I still answer them. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, Jeffrey. Wow. That was just fucking intense. <laughs> That was that was fucking intense. Uh, John, I will be sending you a message. I'll probably message you through Facebook because I'm one of those old fucks that I don't do that other shit either. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but as far as you know, as far as us goes, uh, just go to stilltoken.com. Uh, you know, our book is out. Uh, you know, so make sure you go to the website. There's a link right there under the shop. Go purchase our book and let us know whether you laughed, cried, or used it as toilet paper. You know? <laughs> That's great. I love your white hair, by the way. <laughs> see, oh, thank already... you. You want to see the rest of it? <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> and hurry up. <laughs> you know, I, I'm already sending John a message on Facebook. So, oh, that's because we're already we're already friends. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, no, but in all seriousness, uh, John, thank you so much for coming out and hanging with us tonight. Um, we really did not get into the entertainment side of what you did. But that's okay. We'll have to do a part two. Can I make a, a little suggestion to you? Sure. You know, uh, Mark Twain, after the United States invented lies to invade the Philippines and kill 200,000 Filipinos, he said the stars and stripes behind you, Ben, should be changed to the Jolly Roger, the, the flag of pirates. Mm -hmm. Well, I I thought about that, but 
Mm-hmm. It's actually, oh, it, it's so sad. It's funny. It is. It is. Right? Right? Yeah. Well, I, I have the flag behind me on this show, as I did last week, um, for our veterans and our first responders. Uh, well, that's... The non-criminal side of the American public. Good for you. Good for you. Um, so, you know. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, what was I? Oh, yeah. So, but again, thank you, John, for coming out and hanging with us. You know, hopefully we'll get a part two with the entertainment side of your amazing story. But to all our veterans and first responders, we want to thank you for doing what you do so people like all of us can do what we do. Stay safe. We're out of here. We'll see you next week. Wonderfully said. Peace. Hey.